Hello, and welcome to Baka Banter, a podcast about all things anime and otaku culture. My name is Ravi, and I'm joined by the lad who's really let himself go this summer, Yanatan. You want to say hi, Yanni? That was a pretty weak introduction, I gotta be <laughs> No, it was mostly there so that I could say that I haven't worked out in like six <laughs> weeks. It's just been painful, man. Getting back into medical school has taken all of the time that I'd be using to watch anime, work out, look at pictures of you. <laughs> Sucked it you away. Sometimes I do that. <laughs> a little bit. I watched all of the episodes that we were talking about today in between the hours of 10.30 and 3.30 a.m. last night. So that was painful. Don't go to med school, guys. <laughs> I mean, you can go to med school. You can just be more adjusted than I am, which is poorly right now. <laughs> I really thought you were going to lead off the introduction with something about Barbenheimer because we are recording this on Barbenheimer. We weekend. don't talk about live action on this podcast. <laughs> That's it? Yeah, You have no plans to go see Barbie or Oppenheimer? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I want to go see them. Again, I don't have time for any of that <laughs> shit right now. Uh, yeah, I actually really have been looking forward to Oppenheimer. I I don't know what my impression of it's going to be, considering that there has been some controversy surrounding its representation of the, the nuclear weapon that was developed and how it affected people in the community, etc. It doesn't seem, at least people who... I know personally who have seen it have said that it doesn't take a stance whether that invention was for the good or for bad. But I feel like there's a stance to be taken there. Yeah, there is. Uh, I think there's no question that Christopher Nolan's a very good filmmaker. So I think from like a technical perspective, we'll really enjoy the movie and we'll probably enjoy all the performances. There's probably a conversation to be had about why that specific movie is being made right now and whether other voices should also be amplified. That's kind of a general sort of movie-making Hollywood problem, but we should probably discuss that after we actually get around to making any time to watch it. I definitely want to watch that. I'm also really excited to watch Barbie, actually. Like, Barbie has gotten more mixed that. reviews than I thought it was going to get to. Really? Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've seen pretty positive on Buy It. I've seen reviews that are a little less positive than Oppenheimer, although, again, I haven't seen either of them. I will say I really wanted Oppenheimer to be like an all quiet on the Eastern Front, Western Front. What, which one is it? I can never remember. Is it Western Front? <laughs> I don't I don't want to say the wrong thing because now Western. you made me doubt myself. <laughs> I think it's Western Front. No, I think they're fighting the French. Yeah, it has to be the, the Western Front. <laughs> Yes, All Quiet on the Western Front. And that was like a very clearly anti-war movie. And and I really, really enjoyed watching that film. Oppenheimer, I think, is going to be great because the cast is like super well-known and cinematography is going to be amazing. But I kind of want there to be more of like a moral, ethical spin. And I think I'm going to not get that. Well, maybe we'll have a little discussion about this after we both get around to it. I'm not going to lie. I think this is the only time in the history of this podcast that you have talked about a live action and been like willing to talk about it. Because every (laughs) other time I talk about live action anything, you're like, no, 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 fuck that. Back to anime. (laughs) Yeah. What do you think about the One Piece live action trailer? I have no thoughts. Fuck you. See, exactly. (laughs) This is exactly what I mean. No, because if you make me talk about it, I'm just going to be like not excited for it. What? (laughs) You didn't think the trailer looked good though at all? I think it is very clear that, as we've talked about before, the production team are huge fans of One Piece, and it is very clear that they're trying to have fun with the adaptation, which is more than you can say for a lot of the other live-action anime adaptations. So I think that, in general, is a good sign. I'm still very, very skeptical about how it will be, and I think even if it is good for One Piece fans, I don't think I would like it. Do you ever feel like your skepticism just prevents you from enjoying things? No. There's a lot of things I enjoy. 
There could be more. The world could be brighter. <laughs> if I'm going to get into One Piece, I'm just going to read the manga or watch the anime. Yeah, we spent like literally two hours discussing that today. <laughs> like, how the fuck are we going to do One Piece? Because Yanni's never going to watch a thousand plus episodes. In the runtime of this podcast yet. Yeah, I think I will probably fucking have left the face of the earth by the time you'll finish <laughs> One Piece and we'll talk about them. <laughs> Reading it is faster, so that's the good news. All right, let's get into the rest of the anime news. So the first thing that happened is that How Do You Live actually premiered in Japan, the new Miyazaki Studio Ghibli movie, famously after absolutely zero promotion. I'm very excited to see it. The early reviews that I read from people that saw it in Japan seem actually pretty mixed about the narrative with the animation obviously being unanimously regarded as exceptional. I've seen some takes about the first half of the movie actually being quite experimental and then it kind of reverting something more traditional later on. But I didn't really read super in-depth spoiler reviews because I am trying to, you know, not experience it blind, but I want to go in and be able to make up my own mind about it. G-Kids announced right after that came out that they're releasing it in North America later in 2023. So we'll get a chance to see it, probably talk about it on here pretty soon. I hope it's a live action. It's not. Unfortunately, (laughs) I know that much. They renamed the film... As the boy and the heron, which is a lot worse than How Do You Live. (laughs) Is it? Yes. How? (laughs) I don't know what that means. The boy and the heron is so fucking cringe. It's just like, here's a boy and his bird. How Do You Live has so much more mystique as like Miyazaki's last movie. It has that little, you would use some French word here, (laughs) like pinache or something. Ah, yeah. Le jeu de vie. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what that means, but that's exactly I don't know, man. I think what it means that title has. Life, but here we are. <laughs> I have seen this argument all over Twitter. I have no opinion on it. It's just a cluster of words healthy. for a title. Like <laughs> neither of them really mean anything. So what does it matter? How do you live? What the fuck does that even mean? Exactly. It gets you thinking. The boy and the heron sounds like some like that interesting get allegory. You <laughs> yeah, it does. No, it's like all those like allegorical stories, man. The fucking like the moose and the cookie or the mouse and the cookie or the, ma- and the moose and the pancake. I don't know. Whatever it was. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying anymore at all. <laughs> Anyways, when that comes out later this year in the US, we'll have a chance to talk about it a little bit since I'm sure we'll get around to seeing it. We also got an announcement that Spider-Man freshman year is getting an anime produced by Polygon Pictures, which does all CGI. There was some weirdness around that project that I was not really following that apparently was announced for a full adaptation by an American studio, and they actually had some clips originally for it, and then this announcement came, and apparently it's getting shipped off. I don't really know what's happening with that, but that is coming. I don't know what's going on with that either, but that announcement did make me question whether your straight-edged line of what anime is is going to start blurring pretty soon because as you form a collaborations with U.S. studios or international studios and as they become more international collaboration projects, how are you even going to define anime anymore? Stuff made in Japan. but in- Stuff <laughs> made in Japan, bro. <laughs> what? But independently of that, we're going to talk about this in a second. And we talked, I think it was last episode about the, was it last episode that we talked about Suicide Squad announcement? How dare you not answer my question? But that is what we talked about, right? I did answer your question. We did talk about (laughs) Suicide Squad, yes. And we kind of talked about how we'd have to see if that actually became a trend or not. And then we got this announcement. There's also a new trailer for the Rick and Morty anime that is apparently coming out. All of those kind of collaborations, at least personally to me, are not super interesting. What kind of collaborations between the anime industry and the U.S. and other countries are interesting to me is something like 
Lazarus, which just got announced. Did you see this? Pretty sure I sent this to you, too. And then I was like, oh, man, I'm looking forward to this. And you were like, yeah, I've already seen that, as usual. (laughs) Anyway, Lazarus is an original anime being directed by Shinichiro Watanabe at MAPPA, because apparently they can just handle an infinite number of anime projects at the same time. But what's cool about this is that there's action direction from John Wick director Chad Stahelski and a jazz electronic soundtrack that's being done by a combination of Kamasi Washington, Floating Points, and Bonobo. Those artists actually, unfortunately, do not mean anything to me, but people seem very, very excited about that. Maybe you've heard of these artists before. I'll definitely check them out before this actually comes out. But people are really excited. To me, that's the kind of collaboration between countries that is very exciting to me, where you have cool creators coming together to make something that actually accentuates their strengths. I'm personally just less interested in like, hey, Japanese studio, make some Spider-Man thing. Like that I mean, I don't know about that. <laughs> That's just less interesting. Like Star me. Wars Visions was extremely, extremely anticipated and it turned out really well and it got a lot of people into it anime cool. who initially weren't into it. Like I had a ton of friends who had never watched anime before who were huge fans of Star Wars and they were like, oh man, like this medium is really cool. Maybe I'll check out some other stuff. And I think that as we go into the future, it's inevitable that we're going to have more of these collaborations because... Obviously, U.S. companies know that anime is now a money-making medium. And so you'll start getting these collaborations. It'll happen more and more often. And Just give them all to Watanabe. No. (laughs) I think that maybe you just don't want to see the large franchises or the Marvel coming into things. It seems like your personality, as we know on the podcast, just look for more hipster niche things. (laughs) Yes, I'm always more excited by, like, giving creators chances to do original stuff and the big, big IPs that already dominate a lot of the American market are less interesting to me to also dominate the anime market, but we'll have to see how it develops. I have to ask you, though, did you read the plot synopsis for Lazarus? No, I did not. (laughs) I just saw that picture, and I saw Shinichiro Watanabe, and I saw Bonobos, and I was like, fuck, okay, interesting. You should 100% go read it, because for people that listen to the podcast, you know we're both, I guess, one graduated PhD in neuroscience and one current PhD in neuroscience. Not for long. Yeah, not not for long, hopefully. But the plot is literally about a neuroscientist who invents a magical cure-all pill that just like cures everybody of all sickness. And then he fucks off and then he comes back later and basically tells everybody that he actually fucked up and they have three years to live. Oh, that's actually amazing. I was interested in what your reaction to that is because I hate pseudoscience bullshit like that. It's specifically about like an evil neuroscientist named Dr. Skinner. My brain like malfunctioned when I read that. See, I think that sounds pretty hype. Like <laughs> this is a lot of future tech kind of stuff, right? I mean, you think of cyberpunk. We got cyberpunk, right? Like how do they implement all of those tech within their bodies? The plot Once you kind of remove those details, and I'm sure what's actually executed will be fine and interesting, and I'm not worried about that at all. But just reading neuroscientist Dr. Skinner invents cure-all pill, and then it's actually going to kill everybody. Like, it set something loose in my brain. As long as it's not as bad as Lucy. (laughs) Lucy was just pain to watch. I didn't watch that, so. Another live action. It's going to be the theme of this episode. (laughs) Two more pieces of news. One in particular, well, I guess both of these you're excited for. So one is that Sword Art Online, Gun Gale Online Alternative Season 2 got announced. I would not say that I'm excited <laughs> for that. How dare you? <laughs> we did have this moment where we were like, or at least I was like, holy shit, I'm so excited for this because I enjoyed 
what it was actually the second season of SAO, which had the Gungale Online game in it, but That's wasn't the, the alternative <laughs> spinoff GGO. And so I have not seen alternative GGO. I, from the ratings, I'm not looking forward to watching the show, <laughs> but I have yet to do so. I probably will in the next year or so. We'll see. Until this, I had no idea that there was anything other than the Gungale Online that was embedded in season two. I did not know that there was a separate Gungale Online, but you know. Why am I surprised? It's not good. And then finally, uh, there was an announcement that Oda's one shot that he actually created before he actually started making One Piece called Monsters is getting an anime adaptation directed by Sung-Hoo Park. So it's nice to see Sung-Hoo Park doing something else again. And I don't think there was a date attached to when that's coming out, but I guess we'll get more news about that a little bit later. And I don't know. I think it'd be cool to see more one shot style stories get adapted. I mean, we did our episode on Fujimoto's one shots. It'd be really cool to see like a short film about Goodbye Airy or something like that. So there's probably a lot of very good one shots out there and it'd be maybe cool to see those start to get adapted a bit more. Yeah, I'm excited for this one. I don't know how his earlier work prior to One Piece was. That would be interesting. He's clearly changed over the course of One Piece. Anybody who's looked at the style he has, the type of narrative writing, the lot early One Piece, and I could talk about this forever, but early One Piece was like... Save it. <laughs> very short, to the point. People got from point A to point B. It was like a lot of character development. And then later One Piece has turned into like, as you saw, 173 episode arcs with like many people fighting in all different areas and like new artistic styles and characters. So... My favorite part of Oda is definitely his characters. I wonder if those themes that are in One Piece carry through to his one shot that existed before. I don't know. Be cool to see. We'll check it out. That's all. That's all? Wow. Short news section I'm today. I'm so used to these like 20 minute <laughs> long news sections. I mean, I don't know. Was that 10 minutes, 20 minutes? But I'm so used to these long news sections now. So on today's episode, we're going to be giving our first impressions on the summer 2023 season. We'll be talking about some heavy hitters back for sequel seasons, a couple unexpected standouts, and the best isekai about vending machines that I have seen in a long time. So let's get into it. There are multiple isekais about vending machines? No, actually probably <laughs> is. So Yanni, have you taken your anime on the road yet? Have you ever like watched in a park or on the beach, like a summer place that's not just your home? No, I've never done that. I've definitely read manga and novels and other related stuff at parks and beaches. What I have done is actually when I travel, I usually, if I have internet, try to stay in my routine of at least watching an episode of something that I'm currently on before going to sleep. So I do that during my summer travel. Even when I go camping or like backpacking and I have to like spend multiple nights with definitely no service, I try to still download stuff offline. So I actually have some memories of being in Banff up in Canada and just watching Attack on Titan for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and I like did the same thing with Fate Apocrypha. It's just some other like random shows that I just I'm sitting in the tent at like 9 p.m. when it's already dark in the mountains, just watching something on my phone. Yeah, immersed in nature, man. <laughs> exactly. Had to put away the phone. <laughs> I oftentimes do not watch outside my room. I mean, that's kind of also because of the content I'm usually watching. But, <laughs> but I feel like watching on a train is really not my MO. Um, I mean, we just talked about the fact that like I'm getting into the comfort zone now of 
letting others recognize that I watch anime. It still has not really spread to the med school yet, so we'll try and keep (laughs) those two lives separate. But the the one time, the vivid memory I have of watching anime in public was at a pool with my friends when we rented an Airbnb, and this was in Australia. And I made the mistake of watching Food Wars. You've told this story on the podcast, I think. Did I tell this story in the pod already? I think so. (laughs) Yeah, I was just sitting around this pool watching Food Wars and someone all walked up behind me and it was like the classic fucking spoonful of food, clothes blow off, person is like having a full orgasm on screen, person just walks away behind me and I was like, oh, okay, all right, shut my laptop. It's good, guys. I hate to hear that. Yeah. All right, summer seasonal episode, as usual, Give me your thoughts on the season overall. Well, I watched it really late at night. <laughs> I think this season has some shows that we, or at least I, thought were going to be really good, and which I've definitely delivered. JJK season two will probably have a giant argument about. We'll see. Uh, we already had a giant argument about it. Which is stupid because we both fucking like it. <laughs> yeah, we both really like it. I'm super excited to see Goss's interpretation of it. And... It's just very, very different from Park's interpretation of it. And it's been a nice change of pace with the artistic direction and the interpretation. I really enjoyed that. Mushoku Tensei. I was super excited for Mushoku Tensei. I rated it my best anime of the year of 2021. And has it lived up to that? I don't know. I am uncertain, and that makes me kind of sad already. So those are the two major shows I was really looking forward to. And the rest of the season seems to be pretty light with the exception of something like ZOM 100, which came out of nowhere. Like, I had no idea the show was coming in and might be one of the best shows of the season. The only other thing I'll mention is Horimiya. It's hard to mention Horimiya because this feels like a complete spinoff of like slice of life episodes that kind of just slot in. And I am jamming it. Like, I am loving them. It's a nice addition to what we had before. I don't know whether... It's something that really stands out this season. Earlier this year, as I was kind of like at some point a few months ago looking towards the summer season, I actually envisioned it as a break from the heavy spring season that we just talked about where we had a lot of stuff to watch with not that much stuff that was bad. I mean, I think like the worst thing we collectively watched was, I guess, like the Megumin spinoff or something, which still had Megumin in it. So as like the worst thing in a season, that's like not that bad. And there were a lot of like really high quality shows for the most part. And I feel like summer in the anime industry is actually usually pretty light and there's only kind of a few things. And so I knew I was looking forward to JJK, but I didn't actually have that much else tabbed when I was looking at it a few months ago. And I think because of that super low expectation, it's actually ended up being pretty great in comparison to what I had thought. Fate Strange Fake got delayed from like last fucking winter to now. And that was really, really good. Horimiya got more content out of nowhere. That's been pretty enjoyable. And as you mentioned, Zom 100 was a big surprise for the people who know Ball. Undead Girl Murder Farce also has been a very nice surprise. So all those things collectively have just enjoyed it as this pretty nice lineup that I actually wasn't expecting coming into it. Yeah, I think it's a pretty weak season. I'm not going to lie with you. Think about last summer, we had Maiden Abyss and Liko Rico and actually nothing else. Oh, dude, I fucked with Liko Rico <laughs> so hard. That Same. made the entire season. Great show. Me. Now we have like JJK, which is great, and Mushoku Tensei, which is kind of faltering a little bit. And then 
I'm surprised we're even going to talk about this. I'm surprised you even put this on this list because you don't think it's anime. <laughs> but Link Link is back. I put it on here because I knew you'd want to talk about I it. I do want to talk about it, right? <laughs> and so I'm super excited to see where Link Click goes. I mean, still, easily best OP and ED of the season. Not even fucking close. But besides these few things, I'm not really watching much else. And I probably won't continue on with a lot of the other stuff that I'm going to talk about, but it's going to be mostly memeing rather than me actually caring about what's going on this season. <laughs> Your primary role is to meme. <laughs> All right. So if you haven't been with us for a seasonal episode, here's how it typically goes. We typically start by talking about continuing series that are carrying on from one court to the next. There are none this season, so that section just doesn't exist. Uh, and then we go through the shows in the order that they're listed on Mal. We give a little plot synopsis and we give our thoughts about whether it's worth your time or if you're already watching it, just kind of our first impressions of it. So if you want to open up the Mal seasonal page and follow along, you can do that. Otherwise, we'll just get into it. We're starting off with Jujutsu Kaisen season two, I guess. I guess. <laughs> This is easily the most anticipated show of the fucking season. <laughs> it's my favorite show of the season, but I just already am seeing the argument coming and I just uh, don't even want to talk about it. What do it. you mean? <laughs> All right. So this is obviously being done again by MAPPA. Uh, and the premise is, again, second season of Jujutsu Kaisen, which is going to be split into two cores, which are adapting the hidden inventory arcs and the Shibuya incident arc of the manga. The first arc in inventory focuses on Satoru Gojo's days as a young sorcerer working alongside his friend Suguru Geto and others from Jujutsu Academy, where the central plot thread is that they must protect what's called the Star Plasma Vessel, who's a girl named Riko Amanai, from harm in the days before she merges with Master Tengen. This was kind of a lore drop that they introduced in the first episode, but Tengen is basically a being that exists to protect both Jujutsu High locations by supporting their baby. Yeah, I was like, was I supposed to know who Tengen is? Like, did that no, just come out not. of nowhere? Okay, okay. There was a lot of, like, in that first episode of... I watched Jujutsu Kaisen a while ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, do I know that? Do I not know that? And then you kind of figured it out. Yeah. The second story arc, which we haven't gotten to yet, takes place years later with Gojo as an adult, as his students, which are the main cast of characters, including Yuji and Megumi and Nobara, dealing with a massive amount of curses attacking Shibuya. Okay, let's get the obvious out of the way first, which is that Sung-Hoo Park left as series director. I think he went to go form his own studio. We just talked about the Oda one-shot that he's doing. I don't know if he's actually done anything else. Like, he did the first season of Jutsu Kaisen and Jutsu Kaisen Zero. He did God of High School in between somewhere. And then he left, and I don't know if he's actually made anything else. But that has led to Shona Goshizano making his debut as series director. If you know the name Goso, you probably know him from his work as an episode director for some of the more memorable episodes of Chainsaw Man, for example, number eight, or Ranking of Kings, seven and 21. But he actually got to start working on the first season of Jujutsu Kaisen as an animator. And I think he might have directed an episode or two. I just don't remember. But with him taking over as director, there's been a massive change in the animation style of the series, which I think is pretty apparent to anybody who's started watching this already. The character designs have been simplified. The overall color palette has been pretty significantly brightened. And we've seen a lot of Gosso's varied directorial cuts integrated into the production. So I already know Ravi doesn't agree with this, so he can give his take after I give mine. But I absolutely love the visual change, and I think it is a pretty big upgrade to what we had in season one. And I mean that with no disrespect to season one of Jujutsu Kaisen or Jujutsu Kaisen Zero. 
I'm someone who really liked that season and I really liked the prequel movie. And I even said in a previous podcast episode, I don't know if you remember this, that Jujutsu Kaisen is probably my favorite currently airing battle show. Why do I feel like you're building an argument now? <laughs> so you're like, <laughs> let me cover all my bases. <laughs> That's what I have to do. But then we had this moment where you were like, hey, but what about JoJo's and what about Mob? And then I was like, hmm. Yeah, I made that statement without really thinking. <laughs> but I do think that's actually probably true now with how much I've liked the continuation into season two. I think Park's strengths were undoubtedly in his fight choreography. He really, really excels at that. We saw that in the first season and also in God of High School, which was absolutely horrific, but the fight scenes were still pretty good. And specifically, the hand-to-hand -hand combat was really good. But I think otherwise, for me at least, the series looked pretty solid overall with a little bit of ugly coloring and composition at times. So overall, it looked okay, <laughs> minus the really stellar action sequences. And I think with this new approach, everything looks much more coherent, much more intentional. The direction to me is much more interesting and unique in ways that a lot of anime actually, I think, are not. Uh, and the animation is full of energetic character acting and creative expression. For lack of better words, I know this is not descriptive. It has a lot of soul. And I think people who really like the craft of animation have generally been really, really enamored by Gosso's take on Jujutsu Kaisen so far. And as we thought, given that this is his series director debut, Gosso's fucking him. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. I think the other thing to know is that Gosso has a lot of connections with animators in the industry, which is pretty well documented given how young he is. And so they've assembled a really nice amount of animation talent on the team. And I think that's what's pulling through so far, despite Jujutsu Kaisen definitely having a very tight schedule. So we'll have to see how that actually holds up over the two cores. It's definitely going to be stressful to try to get that done. But I've absolutely loved the visual change to Jujutsu Kaisen. I know you like it and you just don't think it's necessarily a linear improvement from season one. It's curvilinear, actually. <laughs> the thing is, okay, I will start off by saying, stylistically, I do much prefer this season over season one. I have said that before. I think that when you first throw on the first episode of season two and you compare it to any episode of season one, you will be shocked. Like, I was shocked at how different it is. It doesn't look anything like you saw in the first season in terms of character designs, camera movement, color palette. There's so many elements of what you're seeing on screen that are just completely changed. And I like a lot of those changes, right? Like I understand that the animation had to be simplified just practically to allow for the greater flexibility of camera movement. And you couldn't just have those fine details that would have made editing so much more difficult and that allowed for this more interesting shot cutting and that editing that Gosso is really well known for. The problem I have is that it's really frustrating to see a lot of people who were absolutely jerking off to season one when season one was coming out saying like, this is some of the best animation I've seen in a long time, best fight choreography I've seen in a long time, now coming out and comparing it to season two and being like, oh man, season two is a massive upgrade. I think the problem is saying things like it's an upgrade or it's like an improvement over season one 
just puts down Park's work. And to say that something is objectively better in terms of animation is just too strong of a statement because each has its own strengths and its standout features. Season one did have the complexity of the character design, which I loved. I fucking loved Gojo's and Nobara's and Yuji's character designs in season one. I don't know what they're going to look like in season two because I've only watched the first episode. And between every cut, they're adding in a little more comedy. So the character designs are more variable. Usually, most people would look at that and be like, oh, man, there's a lot of variance within the character design. That's usually a negative. But here, people are like, oh, the variance is okay because it's built into a larger gosso work with the camera movements. It's used intentionally, right? I understand it's being used intentionally. I wouldn't go so far as to say as an upgrade. I would rather people say that it is a change or it's just different. I think just the main point of dis- disagreement here is that I think it's totally fine for people to say they prefer it. And I think, first of all, there were a lot of people at the time, people in the Sakura community saying that they didn't really like Park's approach that much. Some people have been very consistent with that. I think most of the fan base who you are referring to as not complaining at the time probably really enjoyed season one, would still say they enjoyed season one, and would just say they maybe are enjoying season two more. And I think that that is also fair to say. It doesn't necessarily have to... I said that. I am enjoying season two more, right? And that doesn't have to discredit what Park did. I think you can just say Park was very good at specific parts of the adaptation. Other parts, it feels like this is an improvement, and I just don't see anything wrong with that. (laughs) I think it's just frustrating because, again, I didn't see a lot of that criticism back in season one, and to see it now just seems like it's just a comparison between directorial styles, which is fine. Like People are definitely allowed to do that and definitely allowed... To say that they think it's an improvement over season one, I just personally don't. I just think it's different. All right. Uh, And I'm enjoying it. (laughs) Anyway, season two. So I am excited now to learn about the character backstories and about the sorcerer world. That was one of the major flaws of season one, is that the character backstories were not really flushed out. The development was not great. The sorcerer world was also not well developed. We don't know what the power system is, and the conflict is still relatively unexplained. And so... There are a lot of things riding on this adaptation in future seasons to explain and build the world more than it has been built already. And I think people in season one were very focused on the fighting and the fight choreography, which, as we said, was Park's strength. And that kind of overshadowed all of the other elements that were missing that people just really kind of threw under the rug. JJK, I think, may be one of the most popular new shonen, And... That's because at least the world building that we got in season one was interesting enough for people to get invested with the curses and with the power system and the fights looking amazing. It still has a long ways to go before I say it's even close to like the best shonen I've seen. Yeah, I think it's tough because a lot of the shonen that we're used to, we did our Hunter Hunter episode and obviously I liked Hunter Hunter a lot more than you did, but... Until Hunter Hunter actually finds its footing, like we both agreed that Nen is a great power system that's generally very well agreed upon. But that it takes like a lot of episodes until you get to Nen even being explained at all. And I would assume similarly for One Piece or Bleach or Naruto, like it takes a while for those shows to really find their footing. And so I feel like with modern shonen, the pace is so much faster. Like nobody's going to watch three, four seasons of something until things really hit their stride. So we're expecting a lot of that much sooner, which is probably overall a good thing. And I think JJK is getting there, but I think it is still relatively early in its run in just comparison with the other 
long-running shonen. I will say for Hidden Inventory, it is a pretty cool arc where we get to see more of Gojo and Geto's relationship. And we already saw, I guess, spoilers for Jujutsu Kaisen Zero. We already saw Gojo literally killing Geto at the end of the movie. And we know that Geto is alive in some form in the first series, siding with the curses. So we are about to find out what basically led to them breaking up as boyfriends and turning Geto's trust kind of away from the Jujutsu Sorcerer system. That's good backstory. I think seeing a younger Gojo is also a lot of fun, where he's clearly like super overconfident, but not yet at the peak of his powers that we know him as, as this kind of like upper bound on power and ability in the world of Jujutsu Kaisen. Yeah, the moral arguments presented in some of the scenes within the first early episodes have been really nice. I mean, you talked about overconfidence, but I think it's also more than just overconfidence. He clearly thinks that these powers give him a different class within society. Like he thinks that it is a hierarchical class where sorcerers are placed above normal people. And that's interesting because what's this other guy, Goto? What's his uh, fucking name? Ghetto. <laughs> Ghetto. There we go. Ghetto's the one actually tamping him down and being like, no, we should be more kind of stewards of the people with our powers. And so that's an interesting moral argument that I think is definitely going to be the center point of their relationship yeah. and what leads There's to There's going to be a rift up. there. Like, you know yeah. that that's how that's going to end up. Yeah. I want to see that, like, pivotal moment when... What's Ghetto? No, Gojo. Gojo and Geto are fucking me up. When Gojo <laughs> just finally comes around to the fact that, no, he needs to use his powers for the people, right? Which is kind of his entire spiel to Yuji and all of the rest of the trainees in the first season. We know Gojo as aloof and going against the system and doing things his own way, but genuinely really caring about his students and teaching them. And seeing him as a student and seeing this at least little mini arc will probably enlightened basically how he got to that point. We actually also saw it in the Zero movie. So it's nice to fill in those gaps as well. I also wanted to mention, you haven't quite gotten there. This is not going to be a spoiler, but you haven't quite gotten there. You already spoiled me with the boyfriend's thing. So. <laughs> how is that a spoiler? <laughs> Yo, man, I didn't know they fuck. <laughs> what I want to say is that the arc really captures the vibe of summer and like a summer vacation and that's explored a lot more in one of the later episodes but you could probably tell that even from just the op i think the op and the ed actually are both really great and do a good job of capturing that summery younger days vibe that the entire arc has and i think speaking for those ops specifically shingo yamashita is just one of the best at ops generally and following the amazing ops that we got for the first season of Jujutsu kaisen is insanely difficult, but I think Yuki Kamiya did a pretty good job following in those footsteps. I actually really like both the OP and the ED. Anything else you want to say about, I guess you only watched the first episode? <laughs> <laughs> I only watched the first episode. No, I'm really excited to see where this goes. Like I said, my entire enjoyment of Jujutsu Kaisen overall and my impression of it is kind of right on how well it explains these things that are just completely obscure right now. Like, I can sit there and just fucking mouth breathe through, like, some amazing fights, right? And I'm fine with that. But I really want to learn more about this world, considering it hooked me within the first season. Production's amazing. I was kind of sad that the OP and ED didn't live up to the first season because both the opening and the ending for the first core were just fucking unreal. Those blew me away. I think they were my favorite ED, at least, of the, was this 2021, 2022, 2021? 2020? 
2020. Oh my god, no, it was th- I have no idea. I don't. Time remember. flies when you're depressed. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was definitely I think one of my top picks for opening and ending, and it's okay this season. It just hasn't been as great as I wanted. Oh wow, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I mean, the first OP and ED are really just kind of another level, but I think they're both really, really good. I like both of them a lot. A few other things I wanted to say, Takahiro Kayasu, aka Dio, playing a villain, I'm always fucking down for that. That's great. I'm also very excited to get to Shibuya. This first arc is actually only five episodes. It's pretty short. And people have hyped up Shibuya to infinity and beyond as this insane battle shown in arc. So I'm very, very excited that we are going to get that fairly soon, and that is going to be apparently like 18 episodes long. That's a pretty long by modern anime standards for a single arc, and I'm excited to see what they do with that and what actually happens in the present, if that can live up to expectations, as you've been kind of talking about. And lastly, did you notice the Paprika reference in the first episode? Because that tilted me. <laughs> Was it the one they're sitting in the classroom? No, no, no. It's the one where the girl whose name I forgot is running out of the mansion and the hallway is like compressing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like a shot for shot remake of the detective in Paprika running in the dream and the hallway collapsing. Anyway, I thought that was super cool. There have been a lot of actually references when they were sitting in the room talking about something. They were talking about like, what other show were they talking about? They were talking about Digimon or something. Oh, yeah, Digimon, right? right? The fucking Metal Greymon like reference. And I was like, yeah, okay. I mean, Gege, I think, is the name of the mangaka. He's, like, super well-known for this. Like, you remember all the Jennifer Lawrence stuff in the, yeah, <laughs> in the yeah, first yeah. season? He loves to throw the pop culture references in yeah. there, which I think just generally makes it really fun. You're telling me Digimon's pop culture? It's not not pop culture. It's what? Pop it's culture 2023, bro. <laughs> you fucking pick a five-year-old off the street, you think they know Digimon? Are they not still making Digimon stuff? Uh, I am going to press X to doubt on that one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... That's all for Jujutsu Kaisen. Talk to me about some isekai. All right. Uh, how do I even talk about <laughs> Mushoku Tensei? Okay. So the thing with Mushoku Tensei is I loved season one. The first season was one of the best anime I have seen in a long, long time. I know there were many elements of it that were controversial, but all of the other elements of it hit my guilty pleasure center perfectly head-on. I loved its world-building. I loved the sense of adventure. I loved the incredible animation, the great soundtrack. Yes, there were some elements that I said you had to compartmentalize, like, you know, the sexualization of younger children. Rudy is a fucking absolute degenerate sometimes. But if you were able to compartmentalize those things, watching Mushoku and Tensei was one of the best fantasy experiences for me, period. In the interim between season one and season two, Studio Bind made the questionable decision to pick up Onimai, I'm Now Your Sister. And Onimai was simultaneously one of the best looking and most controversial shows of the winter 2023 season. They have a knack for picking them. (laughs) Yeah, clearly. (laughs) But when the announcement for its production at Bind was made, people began to question whether this small new studio, which was created for the sole purpose of producing Mushoka Tensei, If you read their purpose, if you read their mission statement, you'll see that this studio's goal is to adapt Mushoku Tensei in its entirety. And the question then became, would Studio Bind be able to balance multiple series and whether picking up Onimai would degrade the quality of Mushoku Tensei's second season? The problem is, 
And this is why I feel like I'm kind of bringing a little sadness to this entire seasonal episode by being like, I was really looking forward to some elements of the season. It's turned out weaker than I wanted. It's because those concerns about Mushaku Tensei weren't completely unwarranted. So before talking about those components, let's talk about the premise. Mushoku Tensei Season 2 continues where we left off from Season 1, which I can't really talk about right now because even though I ranked it my best anime of 2021, you still haven't fucking seen it yet, which is just par for the course because most of my recommendations just don't go for you. I'm watching Haikyuu now. <laughs> You're watching Haikyuu? I didn't even recommend it, I think, for you. What? <laughs> Did you take that from me? Yeah, of course. No way. <laughs> You're the biggest Haikyuu fan I know. <laughs> really? Okay, well, I'm glad. <laughs> I was just thinking about this before, and I was like, we need a better system to organize what recommendations we have, because I feel like you just throw some at me, and I'm like, yes, okay, like, Katana Gatari. I got to watch that. <laughs> you say that, but no Monogatari episode has happened on this podcast, so I'm clearly not doing my job that well. <laughs> no One Piece episode has happened either, so. There's a plan for that. <laughs> so the thing is, and I will try and make this happen, but I want to create, like, a spreadsheet or something where we just put our recommendations for each other, or, like... You were saying maybe we could do this on Mel. I don't know if that functionality exists, but that would be really cool. I don't think that functionality does exist, but I think it would be pretty cool if you could agree to pair up with people that you're friends with on Mel, and then you could like, you can make lists on Mel, so maybe you can like somehow do it. I don't know. But I have been salivating at the mouth waiting for you to watch Mushoku Tensei. There are a few other things too, like Black Lagoon and Death Parade and things like that. But Mushoku Tensei was definitely the top of the list. You haven't seen it yet, which is unfortunate. And that means that most of my recap of season one and part of what I'm going to be talking about with season two is going to be relatively spoiler free. I think I know what happens, but... No, you don't. <laughs> season one introduced Rudius, who was a man who lived a life as a hopeless recluse and who was reborn into a world of fantasy and magic after being hut by Truck-kun. We talked about in our Isekai episode how Mushoku Tensei actually created this trope of getting hit by Truck-kun. And all of the rest of the fanfics on Shosetsuku Ninaro picked this up. So this is the OG, okay? We followed Rudius as he grew and he acquired magic and he built relationships and he began to explore the world before a calamity called him to his ultimate quest. In season two, we continue that quest with a markedly more somber Rudius as he travels to the north and begins his search anew, alone, having to build new relationships and find new reasons to survive and to persist. I talked about how coming into season two, many people were worried about the fluctuation in quality. And as soon as you start watching the first episode of season two, which for some reason is episode zero, you'll notice right off the bat that the animation just doesn't look the same. Even in season one, the moments that really made me fall in love with the show were like 5% of the overall runtime of the show, right? There were like some amazingly fluid action scenes. There's some just great simple scenes where characters are moving around and they're like hair will be moving, which just looked amazing. The other 95% of the show just had a relatively high bar for baseline animation, where character models looked really stable, the environments and backgrounds looked amazing, and I feel like that bar has dropped within season two so far. Like, the character models just don't look as nice to me, the backgrounds are a little less well-detailed, and some of the CGI within season two is a little more noticeable than I would like it to be. The stylistic flair overall, I think, of season one is just missing in a lot of ways. And 
I know there's still some fight scenes that people are throwing around on Twitter. Like you saw the fireball scene within season two, right? Within like the first or second episode. It's so fucking annoying was episode zero in episode one. And so there are still some amazing sequences that have these like fluidity and detailed shots that we remember from season one. But that polish in the rest of it is just missing. And I'm just really sad about that. I think the variability is also super noticeable. There are still some elements, if you could not compartmentalize them within season one, are just going to be difficult to watch within season two because, small spoiler, like one of the first few episodes of season one, Rudius has a mentor, Roxy, who's like the blue-haired girl you've probably seen pictures of. So he like steals a pair of her underwear Oh, yeah, I've seen this. (laughs) Yeah, and then, like, we'll just wear them on his face and then, like, carry them around. In season two, he kind of uses that as a, as kind of like an anchor to bring him down for moments of anxiety, which means he carries around this underwear in, like, a side pouch in his pocket, and you'll just see him multiple times per episode just reaching for them, right? So it's like when he gets triggered or when he's about to have a panic attack, like, that seems to be the anchor that brings him down. And, like... On one hand, I'm thinking, well, mm, wow, this is a really interesting representation of of panic disorder and anxiety and like all of the elements uh, and the consequences of his first seasonal adventures catching up to him. But then it's immediately broken by the fact that you're like he's clutching a pair of underwear. And then he has a fucking like shrine in his room to this. Right. So that sexual innuendo is still there. And it's a lot frustrating to me in some ways. But I will still highly recommend Mushoku Tensei if you liked season one. I think that the adventure continues. There's still so much to learn and realize about Rudius's and the characters around him's lives. I want to see what happens with them. The journey is being well explored. He still has so much to search for. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where that adventure continues from here. Yeah, I saw the underwear thing because people were having a lot of debates on social media, basically along the lines of, they're making it really hard to get behind Rudy's rehabilitation arc if I have to watch him cling to these panties like yeah. every time. Yeah. And I can see how that would be difficult. I did want to ask about the animation. So I think I read somewhere that people were very frustrated with, as it sounds like you were, the animation specifically in this episode zero. And then talked about how it improved and seemed to stabilize in the next two episodes. It sounds like you kind of didn't feel the same way? I agree with that. Episode zero was particularly bad, but I think that's because, again, that 5% of animation that Mushoku Tensei really got known for, first of all, are the combat sequences, and that just didn't exist within episode zero. It happened for one brief moment that looked okay, but the rest of episode zero was mostly political background and a little bit of backstory to explain what happened to another character within the show, which I'm not going to talk about here. In season, sorry, in episode one, which is not episode zero, episode one, I fucking hate that. We again have some elements of action again and some more of the fluidity coming back. And so I'm glad that's come back. There are still some areas where you'll see the CGI if you end up watching this that kind of just looks out of place, especially with the animals. And some of the backgrounds, as I said, are just not as detailed as I would have seen them with an episode uh, season one. More variable, it sounds like, unfortunately. Yeah. I'm still really excited for it. I think the thing that carries with me with Mushoku Tensei is the sense of adventure. And that is still definitely preserved. And 
we talked about kind of like a retribution arc, I'd say. And it's nice to see Rudius dealing with the consequences of everything that happened within season one. And like, again, I, I called him somber, but he is very, very clearly depressed. And it's nice to see him starting to work through that. And I mean, within season one, right, this guy is someone who was a complete recluse, had no friends, had no outside contacts, never left home, right? And so at baseline, his ability to interact with other people is low. And therefore, in season one, it made sense why like so many of his interactions with other people were forced and it was just awkward sometimes. And in season two, again, we have had all of this time where he's adventuring. He had a family and he had friends and he had a party and those things are gone. And for a person who has this backstory of already having difficulty making friends and making family, to have to build everything back up again is so, so difficult. And so it's nice to see him kind of frustrated by that. And I'm really interested to see where we go on and as he builds new relationships. Anything else on Mushoku Tensei? Why do you sound like you're never <laughs> going to watch this? It is like so not in my wheelhouse of interest. Really? <laughs> You're out here being like, man, free run's going to be fucking amazing. I'm so down for this. The fantasy adventure aspect is still there in Mushoku Tensei. And I think I'm sure I would like that part. I'm really going to have a hard time watching this guy who I know is like some 40-year-old just like sexualizing other people. It's actually just going to be hard. Yeah. Yeah, that's the compartmentalization that I talked about. The thing is, you often forget that it's an adult living within that body really, Yeah, that's not good. This is one of those things where it's like, I just wish he was a normal person born in the fantasy world. This is the part of Isekai that I don't like. Isekai? You, you didn't watch Oshinoko, bro? Exactly. Same shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing that I struggled with in Oshinoko, but it sounds like even more probably going to be problematic for me to get through. So. Yeah, I think the way that some people were trying to justify this, and I don't, I don't necessarily agree with this, is that this person is so socially stunted that... It is kind of like they're a child when it comes to social interactions. And therefore, you often do forget that it's an adult living within this child's body. And again, I don't necessarily agree with that. But you only really realize it again when you hear the voiceover. Like you hear the internal monologue and then you're like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. I'll maybe get to it. but Maybe get to it? This is my anime of the year. Pick another anime of the year. I'll watch that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next show, uh, which is one of the unexpected surprises that you mentioned at the top, which is ZOM 100 Bucket List of the Dead being done by Bug Films, which is a new studio that I have never heard of before. Sounds like the Bug's Life. <laughs> you know, I always used to get confused between a Bug's Life and Ants. And they're like not the same thing at I all. I don't think I ever, did I ever <laughs> even watch Ants? I've only seen Ants because I turned it on wanting to watch a Bug's Life. <laughs> So this is going to really date me, but dude, I had A Bug's Life on VHS at home. Oh my God. I fucking played that so many times as a kid. Great I movie. fucking love that movie. I remember it being a great movie. It might not actually be, but... <laughs> I think I had Mulan, A Bug's Life, the Ronald McDonald fucking VHS for some reason that I think we got like in a McDonald's Happy Meal prize thing. That shit was the fire, dude. Like... When we were kids, those sweepstakes prizes were real. That's actually true, yeah. My parents got tired of us bothering them to go to McDonald's for, like, the prizes, so they would just tell us, we'll take you to, like, a different, better restaurant or burger place, and we'll just 
buy you something else. That's <laughs> not the same. I know. There's something about it's not the same. It it's not the same, man. You need the Happy Meal with the chicken nuggies. I'm vegetarian now, but when <laughs> I was a kid, the chicken nuggies, the ball pit that has like fucking 17 STDs in it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I hope it doesn't. <laughs> All right, back to Zom 100. So the premise for the series is that 24-year-old Akira Tendo has gone from an eager new hire straight out of college to a lifeless shell of himself in the span of three years working for an exploitative company in Japan. His apartment is filled with trash. He can't bring himself to confess to his coworker Otori that he has a crush on, and he watches zombie movies with envious eyes. One morning on his way to work, he stumbles upon his landlord eating another tenant, yeah, like actually just eating her. As it turns out that the city has undergone a zombie apocalypse. Akira must run for his life and learn how to survive in this world, but he's never felt more alive. So Zom 100 generated a ton of hype after its first episode, and I think it's pretty clear why after you watch the episode. Bug Films is completely new, so no one knew what to expect, although they're actually apparently also in charge of the adaptation for Witch Hat Atelier, which is another super well-liked fantasy manga. And the animation in that first episode was genuinely excellent. To go along with that, it told a singular cohesive narrative critiquing capitalism that is the main hook for the entire series. Watching Akira slowly descend into depression because of the work culture at his company was honestly hard to watch, but I think echoes so much of the lived experience that people have these days, feeling like they're stuck in jobs that they dislike but have to continue doing in order to survive. Damn, you're making this too real, dude. <laughs> the whole episode is real. <laughs> the central hook that I mentioned is, of course, that the zombie apocalypse that breaks out is preferable to Akira's job and actually frees him from having to go to work ever again. That juxtaposition of the end of the world and this huge calamity being preferable to his day job is brilliant. And even if you have no intention of finishing the series, I would highly, highly recommend anyone just go watch at least the first episode. Some of the cuts were pretty insane from Akira fighting the zombie version of his boss to him literally breaking the aspect ratio of the screen when he realizes that he's free and he isn't bound to his job anymore. Even just that first episode, I think, told such a contained, cohesive story that I think it's just worth a watch for anybody. The bar is low this season for new shows, which is kind of sad because that makes my statement that this is the most interesting new show of the season just not really hit the same. But this is the most interesting new show of not only this season, but any of the recent seasons that I've seen. I think the last time I was so wowed by a first episode, and this is going to sound weird, but if you remember, I was absolutely creaming myself to Tokyo Revengers first episode when that first came out. <laughs> Aged poorly. <laughs> that hype has since died a terrible death. Zom 100, and Amazing I also was kind of primed by the amount of flair it's gotten on Twitter and other social media. But Zom 100's first episode is amazing, like genuinely, genuinely amazing in terms of its animation, the choices made to mess with the color palette, change from color to like a slowly more monochrome color palette, which really reflects the main character's mood to immediately shifting back into brightness as he realizes he's free. The color palette with the blood, the way it just really splatters cool. of paint is just really cool artistic choice. And... In terms of character development, just an incredible amount of character development compacted into a single episode. 
genuinely incredible single episode. Like this could be standalone. You could just watch this standalone within just the first episode. The fact that the love interest was the fucking like concubine of the head of the company fucked me up. I was like, oh damn, like his life is hopefully going to get a little better. He's going to chat with her. And then no, she walks into the fucking closet to fuck this guy at work. And I was like, what is happening? That really tilted me. And when we, uh, can I say it? Spoiler for the first episode. When we find out that she's dead, right? That was like truly a moment of like sadness overcoming this guy's face. But also genuinely, like you feel so much happier for this character when he realizes he's free. And even in that moment of sadness, he realizes like he still has the opportunity to like go do other things with his life and figure out a reason for living. He actually confesses to her too. Like yeah, the exactly. Zombie to the zombie, right? And then walks out the, runs out the door. She's like trailing after him, but then realizes like he has something to live for in life. And it just brings joy to you when you're like, damn, you saw this character so down in the dumps and now he's coming back and has a reason to live and he's going to find that reason to live in this fucking like zombie land saga or like high school of the dead kind of setting. <laughs> yeah. First episode, an absolute banger, as you said, it's standalone and everybody should go watch it. It's an amazing critique of overwork culture and capitalism and all the things that I think are super relevant to people's lives. Yeah, I didn't see any of that. Why are you like that? <laughs> <laughs> now, despite how excellent that first episode is, after finishing it, I have to say I didn't really know what to expect from the story moving forward. I think repeating the idea that zombies are still better than going to the office would lose its charm pretty quickly. And so the narrative that Zom 100 pivots towards is Akira making a bucket list of things that he wants to do before he inevitably dies. That's another cool idea, I have to say, but it's really vague in the sense that the things he decides to do and the way those are presented need to be interesting. The characters he interacts with, all those things need to hit in the right ways for that concept to actually land. Yeah, it was very reminiscent of Oshinoko's first episode too, where yeah. it was an incredible first episode and then we were like, yeah, where is this going to go here? Exactly. So I don't know how that premise is going to pan out. I'm hoping it delivers something exciting, even if it never manages to reproduce the highs of that first episode. I'm also a little bit worried about a new studio keeping up with the animation quality we saw in the first episode over a full core. And kind of a bad sign of that was that the OP kicked in in the second episode, which I don't know if you watched. And it was like 95% cuts from the first episode, which was really weird. Nice. Almost zero original animation for the OP. I like it. <laughs> Best show of the season. So we'll have to see. Regardless, as we've already said many times, go watch that first episode. We'll have to see how it pans out after that, but hopefully it delivers something that is at least close to what that first episode Oh my managed. God, if this hits my lost potential to wasted potential center, <laughs> I'm just going to be really sad, dude. Just pretend the first episode is standalone then. I had to say, so one other thing I wrote down is that for some reason, ZOM 100 strikes me as extremely aggressively Ravikor. And you can confirm or deny that. But maybe it's like the combination of a clever plot idea with some deeper embedded message about society. Or maybe I just think you really like zombies because of I The Walking Dead too. and and The Last of Us and High School of the Dead. I'm but... telling you, the first episode <laughs> hit me hard. And when you're saying things like episode two maybe maybe worse, I'm like, no, no, no I can't hear this right now. Because... The episode itself was solid. It's just the animation in the OP was like already kind of an eyebrow raiser. So we'll have to see. 
In terms of the work-life balance thing, the political statements about capitalism, the animation itself, like, that part, I love that, like, artistic stuff that they do with that. And then fucking zombies, man. Like, I'm so into that right now. I don't know. I mean, I know exactly why, but... I told you, it's Ravikor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do remember, like, the moment that the character, again, like, quote-unquote, broke free. The soundtrack really kicked in, but I wish the soundtrack were the one thing that was a little more memorable. I didn't really notice anything about it. I remember much more him actually like breaking the aspect ratio of the screen, which was yeah. super cool as like an animation choice. But yeah, I don't remember the music at all. Yeah, that's the one thing. So anyway, looking forward to it. Interested to see where it goes. Same here. All right, let's talk about Horimiya next. Okay. I fucking love Horimiya. And really? to the listeners of the pod, <laughs> that's pretty well I didn't known. know that. <laughs> yeah, I know you didn't know that. So I'm reinstating it. The initial pace of the relationship progression, the art, the character design, the color palette, the music, almost every element of the production was done so well. And I can't even say season one because this is not season two. It's like a spinoff season within the actual <laughs> season, right? The one exception was the pacing of the series overall, which kind of fell off in the second half as it began to focus on side characters rather than Hori and Miyamura. And that's something that we both noted within the first season, within the original season. <laughs> Although that put a lot of people off, you included, I don't think there was enough to detract significantly from how great the romance and the other elements of the adaptation were. And that's why I still think Hori Mia is one of my favorite romance anime. However, even though we got a good amount of content within the original season, there was definitely a lot of content that was cut out to allow for the 13-episode small structure within season one. And for some reason, which is definitely money, Cloverworks decided to go back and adapt some of the pieces that were left out, which is what we're getting now, Horimiya, the missing pieces, as if that's not obvious enough. <laughs> and that's kind of fucked up because... I'm too much of a simp to be mad at that, <laughs> but it's kind of fucked up that they're like, yeah, you know what? Let's not adapt all of the good parts of the original and like kind of just limit it to 13 episodes. And now that we see it did well, yeah, let's go back and like make some extra money. That's just really frustrating as a viewer. And I really do not want to see that become a commonplace trend or, you know, something within the That industry. would be fucking horrific yeah. if that became standard, that they just adapt 12 episodes, do whatever they want with it, and then, like, test out if it's... I mean, that kind of already happens, right? But yeah. at least usually it's, like, you get a linear adaptation, it stops at some point. If it's successful, you get more. If not, you have to go read the source material, and that sucks. But at least you don't then cut through parts of the latter half of the manga and piece things together and then realize, oh, shit, instead of just making a second season, we can't do that because we fucked around and now we have to, like, jump around the timeline and fill in gaps. That's really a fucking element. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so I think the reason I'm not more mad is because I'm such a simp. And so, therefore, I am still really, really enjoying the content that we're getting. And I understand in the back of the mind that frustrates me a little bit because, again, I'm saying like, oh, man, I love this stuff. I just don't want to see it becoming a commonplace thing. Talking about the second – talking about this <laughs> spinoff season, so frustrating. The pieces season. The pieces season. 
Pisces season. I shit you not. The synopsis on Mal for the season is just literally, quote, stories from the manga not adapted in the main anime. <laughs> that is <laughs> fucking useless. Thank you, Mal. That is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. It doesn't tell me what it actually is. But what are they supposed to be like? Oh, we got half of an episode about Kyoto, and then there's also the sports festival. Just tell me <laughs> anything about Hori and Miyamura, please. <laughs> so if you haven't seen Hori and Mia before, which is a fucking travesty, it's a national fucking tragedy. It's okay. The show centers around the relationship between high schoolers Kyoko Hori and Izumi Miyamura. Hori and Miyamura are two individuals that no one would expect would end up together because Hori is popular, smart, and outgoing, whereas Miyamura is gloomy and often on the fringes of school social circles. A fateful encounter brings them together, though, and they discover that each has a secret personal life, with Hori being a maternal homebody to her younger brother and Miyamura having numerous piercings and tattoos. One of those is very different from the other one. <laughs> yeah. This was like one of the first episodes we did, I think, was the winter first impressions, 2021. Yeah. And we talked about this. And I think I actually wrote the premise and I said something like, and their big secret is that she takes care of her family. <laughs> yeah. And he has a tattoo. <laughs> yeah, right. And that reads so lame when you say it that way. <laughs> But honestly, it's like, man, wow, she's like super popular, but she goes home and like yeah. <laughs> takes care of her little brother. Oh, fuck. Can't let people know about that. Like, bro, what? I mean, like me and Mara, I get because like tattoos are kind of taboo within Japanese society. And like that's yeah. explored a little bit within, you know, this spinoff season. And like maybe piercings for guys are like kind of coming into trend now. I wanted one, but I still have to be careful about that. Right. Anyway. As they keep each other's alternate persona a secret, Hori and Miyamura grow closer and eventually end up dating. And the great thing, the reason I fucking loved Hori and Mia is because that happens with an episode like three. And that leaves or should have left the rest of the nine to ten episodes for them to explore how their relationship goes. And I think that's something that like, mm, I'm not going to spoil that. I can't even say the name of it because it's going to spoil it. <laughs> I think you know what I'm going to talk about anyway, what I would have said. Anyway, the thing with season one is that it just jumped into the relationship. And that is unheard of, I think, within anime. Like in almost every shonen or seinen romance that I've seen, I definitely have not explored the Jose space as much as I probably should. But at least within shonen or seinen, characters barely ever even end up together, much less within episode three. And that's why I loved it. As they grow closer, the show follows them and their classmates through their high school relationships. And now we get to our spinoff season. And it is just a disjointed set of slice of life episodes that should be inserted within the original season. But it's a nice way to allow fans of the series to spend more time with the characters. And because of that, I'm fucking loving it. I know it may sound like I am mad that we're getting the season. That is not true at all. I'm mad that we're getting the season in this way as opposed to what it could have been. But I'm still fucking loving what we're getting right now. If you like season one, you're going to like this. There's just not much more to say about that. The animation still looks cute. Cloverworks does a great job with their character designs. Like they fuck up the narrative every single show they put out. But the character designs generally look pretty good. And I love Hori and Miyamura's relationship. They definitely leaned into the humor a little more now because it is more a slice of life comedy than the original season. 
And the stories are funny, and again, I, I'm enjoying that humor. It's nice to see that side of Miyamura and Hori's relationship progress rapidly because you have these like slice-of-life disjointed episodes. It's just a nice little bone that Cloverworks has kind of tossed to the fans. Yeah, I think that last part that you said is, for other people, if anybody's wondering if they should watch this, it's very simple. Did you like Horibia? Yes, then watch this for sure. Did you not like Horibia? Then don't watch it. Like that, That's super easy. For me, personally, I might surprise you, actually. I think I might be enjoying this more than the original series. It's because you're a fucking shithead. <laughs> and, you know, we just talked about the pacing issues with the original adaptation, so I don't really need to say much more about that. Hori and Miyamura getting together was great, and then they decided to jump around focusing on side characters, which in and of itself, telling stories about side characters is fine, but there wasn't that much room to do so, and it jumped around without a ton of cohesion, so that left me with just kind of a disjointed feeling. And the manga itself is filled with, it's a pretty long manga, it's filled with a ton of these slice-of-life chapters that let us spend more time with the main couple and with all of their friends, and it allows all of these developments that felt disjointed come naturally. And so that's basically the gap that we're filling with this adaptation, where we're getting a lot of these slower-paced events in their high school lives. The Kyoto trip and the sports festival have been especially cute so far. Really, really enjoyed those. And like you, I'm upset that we got it this way. Like, this is what the second half of Horimiya should have been from the beginning. And it makes me even more annoyed at the adaptation choices because, for example, in that first episode, having to jump from one half to another in completely yeah. different parts of the timeline, I was like, what when is When Miyamura's hair is long and then you're like, wait, where are we? And then fucking <laughs> so 20 minutes in, you're like, wait, it's short now? Like, what's going on? Someone on our Discord joked that somebody eventually is going to create like a Horimiya Ultimate and then like splice together <laughs> the pieces where they should go it's in the original definitely going to become <laughs> fucking like Haruhi Broadcast Order versus oh, fucking like... <laughs> <laughs> For me, hearing you say that is very interesting because the season that we got originally was already a lot of slice of life, right? There was obviously the relationship development within the first like five yeah. episodes, which is great. But then the rest of it was already slice of life. So considering this season is just slice of life, how do you like it more than the first season? I think it's because it feels much more natural. Okay, saying I like it more than the first season is a little bit of bait. Obviously, the beginning part of the first season... <laughs> you admit I, to it now. <laughs> the beginning part of the season, I like the most out of any Horimiya we've had, the beginning part of the first season. But as like an entire package, what I wanted after that was just to hang out with Hori and Miyamura as a couple, spend time with their friends, and then if we want to think about, oh, this side character might get a little bit of development in this arc. We've spent more time with them, so you actually know who that side character is. You have some attachment to them. And at the same time, you are seeing a lot of those events from Hori and Miyamura's perspective. So that's really what I wanted out of the second half of Hori Mia. And this is like kind of giving me that. It's just too disjointed. It I've is said too that disjointed. word three times so far. And like that switch within even the first episode was so jarring that I was like, what yeah. the fuck is going on? I will on? say that the two episodes after that were a cohesive set. Yeah, it was, it's a festival arc, right? Yeah, I assume yeah. then we're going to skip again and that will probably also be disjointed. But sports it feels like wholesome high school romance slice of life and I'm having fun with that. I don't think in any universe I would have been as big of a Mia fan as you, <laughs> but I am actually quite enjoying this. Just please adapt things normally from now on, studios. Yeah, that I, is I need you to do true. that. <laughs> I just, again, maybe I need to explore the not shown in romance space to get more of these relationships. But I think the reason that like, it really hit me was it was just so different from 
everything else I had watched before. And I fucking love the character design. They're so fucking hot. <laughs> We're going to end on that. <laughs> Miyamura's fucking 10 out of 10 with the long hair. He should have cut the long hair. Hey, you are so mad. <laughs> and Hori is like fucking also 10 out of 10 hot. So It is a good character design. Yeah. All right. We're running slow on time. Run me through your two meme picks. <laughs> How dare you? Okay. I can't believe you watched this. <laughs> I had unlimited time to watch shows. Why wouldn't no, I? No, you did <laughs> The girl I like forgot her glasses. Fuck you. <laughs> is a case study in using advancements in animation for evil. I knew I had to watch the show after the first episode came out and there was the opening sequence being passed around on Twitter. And if you go watch that opening sequence, you'll see that for some reason, the director decided to make every character walk like fucking Slenderman and put the camera literally <laughs> in the ground just looking up at their assholes. Like, what kind of directorial choice was that? Yeah, man, put me on the right fucking ground out here. Oh, yeah, put their legs back there. You know those like, air fucking like creature things they put in front of stores that have the wiggly arms <laughs> that it's exactly what these stupid motherfuckers look like right so i saw that and i was like you know what i gotta watch this first episode i have to watch this and this show delivers in absolutely every way that i expected and more so before i pop off i realize i'm already popping off let me tell you a little bit about it the show is being produced by studio go hands I am not joking. Studio fucking go hands, right? It sounds super salty at baseline. They do assault and they're known for that. <laughs> <laughs> and they have a number of works under their belt, exactly zero of which I have ever even heard of. And this includes shows like K, which I can't even find on Mal because it's just a single fucking letter, K. Handshakers, which is my personal favorite, because we're getting a theme here with Studio Go Hands. And another show also coming out this season, The Masterful Cat is Depressed Again Today, which I saw on Mal has a 7.5, which I'm like, is this actually good? Probably not, but maybe some people are enjoying it. And then there's the first show that they produced, Princess Lover, which someone in the Discord probably knows. I have never in my fucking life heard of this. That came out in 2009. And this was based on an Aerogay for Microsoft Windows, really dates it, that came out in 2008. And the only reason I'm telling you about this is because in May of 2021, Princess Lover was one of five anime, including Konosube, That Time I Got Reincarnated as a Slime, Zombieland Saga, and Nekopara, that was actually banned in Russia because of their depictions of reincarnation. This set me off the edge a little, because first, some Russian bureaucrats, like fucking Putin himself for all I know, thought that isekai was dangerous because they might convince children to kill themselves if they believed they would then get reincarnated in a fantasy world. I mean, fair, like I think about that all the time. And second, because they decided to ban two of the most well-known isekai, fucking Konosuba, and that time I got reincarnated as a slime. They banned a very well-known zombie idol show, which I guess has some reincarnation in it. And then fucking Princess Lover and Nekopara. Those last two aren't even reincarnation shows. They're literally an etchy and a slice of life comedy about cat girls. Like, what the fuck are you doing, Russia, that your government has to be concerned about you offing yourself to a reincarnated world of cat girls? Like, what is happening? 
For the first time ever in my life, I think I agree with Putin that isekai is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> like, I never thought I'd be fucking saying this on this podcast, but what is happening? Anyway, uh, we've really strayed from the original point. So, Glasses Girl. The show follows Kaede Komura, a high school student who has a crush on the girl who sits next to him in class, named Ai Mie. All Kaede wishes for is for Mie to look at him with her beautiful eyes, which are just behind her thick glasses. But one day, Kaede comes to class and notices Mie squinting. She has somehow forgotten her glasses, which is like, as someone who wears glasses and can't see without them, would be fucking devastating, right? She's just jamming. And this begins a relationship where Kade helps out Mie as she repeatedly forgets her glasses, and the two grow closer through the time they spend together. The thing with this show is that it would have just been the normal disposable romance trash that comes out every season if it weren't for the animation, which incorporates a lot of CGI and camera movements. And, like, generally, I think you like that stuff, right? Like, you like integrated CGI. Don't mention my name with the word like in the Gohan section. (laughs) (laughs) And you like good camera movements. I mean, you like Gosso. Gosso uses fucking good camera movements, right? I'm comparing the two. It's happening right now. The problem is that oftentimes that CGI and those camera movements look absolutely fucking terrible. If you don't believe me, just go watch the fucking like two minutes of the opening sequence. But a lot of time, the camera is just placed in a really weird location or makes these giant sweeping rotations for no reason. And that makes the CGI look really out of place even more than it already does. And so it just leads me to question, like, what is this director doing? Were they basically the first time on the job, like, man, just move that camera as much as you can? Like, what is happening? In terms of the actual narrative, the situations make literally no sense, and the dialogue is at a fucking first-grade reading level. Within the two minutes of the opening sequence that you should go watch, The guy just repeats himself like four times. What is wrong with him? I do not understand what's happening. It clearly was written by someone who has never understood how to have a social relationship, much less a romantic one. So I will say, go watch the opening sequence and then fucking burn this show. (laughs) This is just the latest Gohan's atrocity. You speak like a seasoned Gohan's veteran. So I have, during this segment, been looking up some Gohan stuff because I remembered that there was some scandal with Gohans, and it turns out that they actually had, and this is what I kind of remembered but forgot, they had, in production, a clamp adaptation, actually, of a series called Tokyo Babylon that got canceled because they fucking plagiarized character designs, and then they continued to plagiarized a bunch of other stuff that came out during the production stages. Go hands thrown hands, man. Somehow now they're just back with more anime and it still looks like shit. So fuck go hands. <laughs> I don't know how I uh, again, it just comes down to money, but I don't know how they got two adaptations within one season, one of which looks like a fucking nuclear atrocity. And the next one, which I haven't seen that much of, but it has a 7.5, which is not terrible. Yeah, I know nothing about it, so I'm not watching it. (laughs) I mean, you've already seen the opening sequence. If you're listening to this, just go watch the first two minutes. It will really spice up your day. It's worth it for the memes. Yeah. All right. Number two? Do it. If ever I have watched a show that was made just because an author in a production studio wanted to meme it up, this is it. There is 
absolutely no reason to ever watch a vending machine isekai unless you just want to melt your brain, which is honestly is certainly a valid reason to watch anime. Like I do that all the time. But even this was out there for me. Reborn as a vending machine, I now wander the dungeon, obviously a light novel, or vending machine isekai, as I'll keep calling it, is about a guy who has a vending machine fetish who dies when he's crushed by a vending machine. Do you think I was going to say that? I assumed that that's something along the lines of what would happen. <laughs> However, and trigger warning to the Russian government, he's reincarnated into a fantasy world as a vending machine. He finds that he's been reborn on the edge of a lake, and because he requires coins to keep himself alive, dude, I am killing myself just saying this, he worries about how long he can survive in his new form. That is, until a hungry adventurer named Lamis passes him and finds herself wowed by his magical vending machine powers that can provide novel snacks and drinks in exchange for coin. I can see the light leaving your eyes. It's gone. <laughs> Lamis realized the vending machine which she named Boxo, is actually sentient, and she takes Boxo back with her to her settlement, beginning the duo's adventures throughout this new world and its dungeons. Now, apparently, and this was a real shock to me, this light novel has received pretty positive reviews from readers and was praised by critics, including Lindsay from Anime News Network, for bringing a breath of fresh air to the isekai genre. And I gotta be honest, and this is no offense to Lindsay. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck those critics are on about because the anime adaptation is just not good. And that's not because of the animation or music, which are just bang average. This is standard fare for like most anime every season, but mostly because the narrative is just straight up dumb. I get this work maybe trying to provide a comedic spin on the isekai genre, but it just doesn't land for me, and it feels more like fanfiction, which it is. I mean, this, again, is a spinoff off of all of the other fanfic that came out of Mushoku Tensei that falls into the same ruts made by 90% of the garbage isekai coming out every season. I hate to say this. I will watch a couple more episodes just to see what's going on, but this is likely a drop for me, so take that as you will. This guy has <laughs> such limited time. And not only did he make time to watch the glasses bullshit and the vending machine isekai, he's going to continue with the vending machine isekai a just a episodes. little bit longer. I got to see what happens, man. I got to see just a little bit of what happens. I am shocked about the fact that critics thought it was an interesting take on the isekai genre. I want to see what happens. That does not mean anyone else should see what happens. If you are not a fan of Yisakai, this should be a fucking 100% miss. I'm happy for you. <laughs> <laughs> the most painful face you've made all night. Whatever makes you happy. All right, let's keep it rolling. So the next show we're going to talk about is Undead Girl Murder Farce. I need a better name, like a shortening for that, because I don't yeah. want to say that every time. Undead Girl? Undead Murder? Murder farce? Undead farce. Girl like farce. It. Girl farce. No, that sounds <laughs> questionable. So the premise for, I don't know what to shorten this to, Undead Girl Murder Farce is that it takes place between the late 19th century and early 20th century in a world filled with magical creatures where the disembodied head of Ayarindo is carried around by her maid Shizuku in a curtained birdcage. She's literally just carrying around sounds like demon her slayer. head in a cage. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> She's an actual character. <laughs> they seek out Tsugaru Shinuchi, a half-demon performing theater in historical Japan, and recruit him on their journey across Europe to retrieve Aya's body that was decapitated by an unknown villain. Along the way, the duo solve mysteries related to the supernatural. Okay, so, despite what Ravi will tell you, this is another show that has surprised a lot of people this season. Why am I catching strays out here? <laughs> I'm just saying, the show is a 7.5 on Mount. The same amount as fucking Gohan's recent adaptation. <laughs> they don't know ball. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and I'm actually going to be that guy and say that I called this one. Mainly because Mamoru Hatakayama is directing it. And Hatakayama is mostly known for his work as an animator and episode director at Shaft before transitioning to being the series director for what are two of my favorite modern anime, Rakugo and Kaguya-sama. And with Undead Girl Murder Farce, he's pretty much cemented himself for me as a director whose works I'm just going to watch without asking too many questions. Kaguya is really expressive in its animation. I think most people would agree with that. But Rakugo, much like Undead Girl Murder Farce, I really, really need a new name for that. <laughs> Undead Girl is more limited in that department, but makes up for that with creative camera angles and shot compositions that only a talented director is capable of. This is pretty much just a case of a good director just knows how to make good anime. Beyond that, the best way I can sell this series to other people, and mainly Ravi, is to say that if you like mysteries and historical fiction and charismatic characters solving them, this is probably going to be up your alley. This is based on a novel, actually, not a light novel, like a real novel, by Yugo Awasaki. And from what I can gather, he's young, but pretty well respected as an author of mysteries in Japan. And the standout feature of the adaptation is just the chemistry between the leads, Suguru and Aya. Their banter as a detective-servant-master duo where one of them is a demon and the other is an immortal head that needs to be carried around is absolutely hilarious. And the witty dialogue between them in this historical European settings where they're this like fish out of water is really, really good. It actually almost reminds me of a lot of Nisei Risen's writing with some kind of Araragi Shinobu or Shichika Togame conversations that just make pure talking scenes pretty engaging with that combination of the dialogue being entertaining and also the quality of the adaptation. I think it's a little bit early since I've only watched three episodes to talk about the quality of the mysteries themselves. The first short mystery arc is seemingly wrapping up, but I don't actually know the conclusion, so I can't fucking tell you how good it is. But so far, this has actually been one of my favorites from week to week, and I would highly encourage people to watch it. I'll think about it. You won't. <laughs> You're just going to go watch Vending Machine guy instead. I know it. Listen, let me live my life, man. The thing is, you sell it. It sounds certainly very interesting. It sounds like a lot of things I'd like. Historical perspective on Japan, has a lot of dialogue, has like a interesting, I wouldn't say fantasy, but potentially like magical aspect to it. Yeah, supernatural elements. Yeah, supernatural yeah. elements. There are like vampires it. and shit. Yeah, zombies? Uh, not yet, but maybe. Okay. If you see a zombie, let me know. <laughs> but things that I'd generally be interested in. So it sounds great. I am just a little put off by the fact that I haven't heard much about it except from you. And I have such limited time that I it think It shows that you're not on the Discord to. because we've been talking about this. Yeah, man. The little time I open the Discord <laughs> is like 75 messages gone past and I respond to the latest one that I see. <laughs> 
<laughs> which today I think ended up being, what was I talking about? We were talking about One Piece for a little bit. Oh, we were talking about how much the fucking Chimera Ant arc sucks. Yeah, that was heinous. We will never speak of that again. <laughs> There's been a little bit of fare about it. If you follow Kevin from Sakugaboro, he's done a few breakdowns of the specific episodes. If you want to check yeah, those first out. First name basis, some of the fucking style. Kevin from Sakugaboro. No, that is actually just <laughs> his Twitter name. <laughs> <laughs> We're definitely not on a first day basis, but this happens quite a bit where I try to sell you a show and you're like, yeah, that sounds like a lot of things I would like, but I know that you're not going to get around to it because there's too many things to get around to. Like We were talking about Yamada-kun last season and that ended and actually got quite a bit of hype towards the end on social media. I know you'd love it because of the gaming rom-com aspect, but... That is actually much, <laughs> much higher on my list probably than uh, fucking Rakugo-esque whatever this is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, link click. Link click. In our 2021 year end review, I snuck in link click for best OST to your chagrin, even though you didn't want to include it because it's not technically anime. Given that it's produced by, don't fucking start with me here. <laughs> given that it's produced by a Chinese studio and is therefore technically Donghua. Okay, whatever. It's fucking anime. No, it's not. <laughs> but either way, season two is coming out now, and everything I said about season one continues to be true. As a reminder, I loved season one. You know what? Maybe this is just a theme for me, and I'm just like realizing this like in the moment. It's like kind of stream of consciousness. I like things that are, and this is going to sound like you because you're a fucking hipster, but I like themes that you have a trend or you have a trope, and you just have moments, animation, themes music that breaks away from the normal trope of what a show is, right? So you like subversion. <laughs> Can you even define subversion? We had a whole panel about that. No, I don't remember that. <laughs> and you didn't realize you liked it? <laughs> the thing is, and the reason I didn't say subversion, is because <laughs> Dong Hua is something that I think I really just enjoyed, particularly because it was different from anime, right? And Link Click was a stellar example of how to use the animated medium to tell a story that looks fucking amazing, that sounds amazing, and that can tell a story that you would probably never be able to tell in live action, right? So you agree it's different from anime because you just said that. I think I noticed it, and that's why I was like, man, I fucking love this. It looks different. Yes. I'm just taking the piss. <laughs> so when I watched it, I immediately fell in love with Link Click, and that's why I wanted to put it on my runner-up for even anime of the year of 2021. I know you would have had a fucking aneurysm. That's why I did not do that. You can do whatever you want with your list. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to cause you pain. That's not in my normal wheelhouse, <laughs> even though me telling you that Jujutsu Kaisen season two that is That did cause me pain. <laughs> Not as much pain as you not liking UFO, but, you know, there are levels to pain. I think that was our most contested episode because you at the same time were like, yeah, man, what's the English name? Your Lion April. Yeah, Your Lion April. I'm thinking of the fucking Japanese name. Your Lion April is not good. And I was like, fuck out of here. <laughs> anyway. We got to learn to be okay to disagree. It's tough. Marriage is hard. Fuck off. As a reminder, our protagonists, Cheng Xiaoxi and Lu Guang, have the ability to jump back in time to a moment a photo was taken, and they use this ability to take on jobs from clients wanting them to find out information or secrets from their past. However, at the end of season one, both Cheng Xiaoxi and Lu Guang find themselves at the center of a much larger mystery, one that puts their lives and the lives of the people around them in danger. 
Season 2 picks up where we left off and continues to unravel the mystery of the Force antagonizing our two MCs. The thing with Season 2 is that every element that I had just talked about that I loved within Season 1, how fluid the animation was, how cool the direction was, the camera movements, the hand-to-hand combat fucking blows away so much of the stuff that I'd seen before in anime. And it sounds like I'm creating an artificial comparison here between anime and Donghua when I actually do not think that they're different. I think they're basically just the same medium. It looked incredible. The OST and sound design here continue to impress. The story continues to be interesting, and I think this is where any argument that we have will exist because there's still a lot to be explained, and I think that's a really positive thing. I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens with the story. I'm really excited to see what this power is that's antagonizing them, how they're using their powers, and what the characters are going to do with their newfound realization of what consequences their powers have. And the characters, they look fucking hot. Honestly, some of the best character designs that I have seen and the Sakuma moments in Link Click, you have to agree with this. They stand out as some of the best looking in this season. And that's saying a lot when you have both JJK and Mushoku Tensei coming out right now. I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> really? <laughs> I think Link Click looks good. And I think especially some of the fight scenes do stand out. I don't think it's on the level of the other two shows you just talked about. Dude, that hand-to-hand combat scene, even in the first episode, or was it second? first episode, I think? Second episode. Second episode? Pretty sure it was first episode. Unless we're thinking about a different hand-to-hand combat. The hand-to-hand <laughs> combat where he's fighting the girl holding the knife. Oh, yeah. We're thinking of a different... Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of a different scene. Okay. It looks so good. It's super fluid. The camera work is incredible. Everything about this show makes this a 100% must-watch in my book. The thing that absolutely stands out for me, best opening and best ending this season, hands down, no competition. I guess. What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) To summarize my thoughts, we haven't talked that much about Wink Click on the podcast as a whole because I think even when you were trying to talk about it at the anime review, I don't think I had actually seen it yet. I love time travel and I think the concept behind the series is really cool. I really, really like the idea. But... After watching season one of Link Click, I was pretty mixed about it overall. I think it has some really good moments and it built up what felt like high stakes by the end of the core. And so I enjoyed those. But for me, just some of the emotional moments didn't land throughout the entire run. I think the characters being relatively one dimensional is actually a big reason for this. And there were some narrative choices that I felt like violated the rules of the world. The basketball episode set me for a fucking absolute tilt. Because it didn't make any sense at all. You didn't like it? It looked great. No, it wasn't about the animation. It was about the fact that he kept his own basketball abilities in the other person's body, which doesn't make sense. (laughs) Anyway, some of the time travel, I think, is kind of messily executed. But because season one did leave on this cliffhanger and because I liked the stakes it was setting up, I was looking forward to season two, potentially at least delivering a little bit more on the ideas that I liked. And my opinion hasn't really changed because I think it's just too early to tell if it is actually going to deliver on what it's set up. So my opinion is pretty much what I just said. It has great ideas. The execution for me can kind of be hit or miss. And we'll see if it hits more than it misses throughout the run of the second season. And, you know, if it does do that, which I hope it does, then I'll definitely have a much more positive outlook, I think, on the entire series. So I'm hoping that I do get 
invested in that part of it. I had two other extraneous points. One was about the OP, which I agree is really, really excellent. Link Click in both seasons has really delivered with creative animation and really nice matching music for the OP. So I love what they did with that. It's definitely one of the best of the season. What even comes close? I love the Jujutsu Kaisen OP. It's not even close, love it. dude. And I think I actually prefer it, but you we are don't have to get on <laughs> fucking something right now. But I do love the OP here quite a bit. The second thing, which I don't know if you have noticed or have felt at all, I have no idea what is going on with the translation on Crunchyroll. Yeah, what the fuck is happening? Crunchyroll it might just be my speculation is that they are not used to working with or translating from Chinese, but the subtitles are fucking awful. And I now remember this from the first season, but they actually somewhat ruin the experience because the dialogue is translated in ways that read stiff and just grammatically incorrect at times. Like, I don't know what is happening there and how that could be a problem from season one to season two, but can they hire a translator that knows what they're doing? Because the source, it does not translate that no, way. It shouldn't translate man. that way. There's nobody that speaks <laughs> fucking Mandarin out here. Yeah, like what yeah, is happening? I don't happening? know if it's Mandarin or Cantonese, but... I don't understand I that. I completely forgot about that because I blacked that out of my memory. I just let that slide. I'm trying so hard to do it, but then at some points, I'm just like, that's not a sentence. <laughs> Yeah, that's very frustrating. I think that what you're saying are like very valid reasons to be concerned about the show. And I mean, again, it's like a reason that I said I was concerned about the show, that we have a lot yet to flush out. The same is true of Jujutsu Kaisen, which is why I said that then. I think that saying that the execution is not good is maybe a little too broad. Like, the actual execution of the artistic elements is done phenomenally well. The execution of maybe the narrative is something that has yet to land. I think still one of my favorite things I'm watching this season. I talked about how this season has kind of left not the best taste in my mouth with the fact that we're getting this frustrating Horimiya thing that I'm like Stockholm Syndrome attached to because I fucking <laughs> love the original Horimiya <laughs> season. We're getting Mushoku Tensei season, which is almost objectively worse quality than the first season. And we're getting not much else. And these like new things, which I'm looking forward to, like ZOM 100 looks great, but like there's nothing that interesting and new, which I'm kind of sad about. You know what is interesting that's new? Fate Strange Fake and you didn't watch it. Yeah, <laughs> this is the one thing that I haven't watched yet because I could not do the hour long episode yeah. before this. I saw some clips of Fate Strange Fake. That shit looks fucking amazing and I really want to go watch it. Yeah, so I'm going to cover the last two series here, which are not currently airing. So one is Fate Strange Fake, which was an hour special that already dropped and go watch that. Uh, and the other is Oku, which was dropped very recently, but all at once on Netflix because they keep being inconsistent with their drop release schedule. So I'm going to cover those quickly as part of the package of this season. I'm going to say, first of all, that it's hard to associate Fate Strange Fake with this season. First of all, hard to even say that. Because it just like is a one-off thing and then like, all right, see you in fucking 2025 with the actual season. That is unfortunate. Yeah. So Fate Strange Fake, it's been done by A1 Pictures. The premise here is, as usual with Fate, there's a Holy Grail war in which mages and their heroic spirits fight for control over an omnipotent wish-granting device that can fulfill any desire. Years have passed since the fifth Holy Grail war, and signs point to the emergence of a new Holy Grail in the western American city of Snowfield. However, this war is atypical, featuring a missing servant class, servant summonings that should be impossible, and a host nation, aka the United States, that is shrouded in secrecy. 
All right, so I've watched all of Fate Zero, Unlimited Blade Works, Heaven's Feel, Apocrypha, and Prisma Ilia, the last one there being the best. How fucking dare you? <laughs> but in the few years that have passed since I've seen any Fate, I actually almost forgot how fun the core concept is. A battle royale amongst mages that summon historical servants to fight on their behalf is just insanely cool, and it gives a lot of opportunity for writers other than Nasu to come in and weave together interesting stories in alternate universes that use that same setting and idea. And that's exactly what happened here as Fate Strange Fake is an adaptation of a light novel written by Ryogo Narita, who's known for writing both Bakano and Durarara. I've seen Bakano, haven't seen Durarara yet. You didn't like Bakano. So I didn't love the execution of Bakano as an anime, but I liked the concept of it a lot, and I've heard that the novels are super excellent. And Narita in general seems to write stories that feature an ensemble cast with a bunch of crossing paths between that cast. And that's exactly what you see in this iteration of Fate. It's actually also set in the United States, just like Bakano is. My sense is that Fate fans consider this one of the better overall entries in the entire franchise. And my Fate insider correspondent, just one of my friends who's really obsessed with Fate, put it as, quote, a mature fate without all the usual Nasu bullshit, unquote, which I think is funny. <laughs> it's hilarious because he actually does talk like that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Narratively, there's not a whole lot to say since everything was mainly character introductions and setting up the stakes of the conflict, kind of like that first extended episode of Fate Zero. I did really enjoy checking in on Waver as his older self, seeing Gilgamesh reappear and meeting some of the new characters that seem really fun, like Flat. Someone has to tell me why the fuck Flat is so OP that he can just summon a servant from like a toy. Somebody has to explain that to me. <laughs> Does Lancer still die in like two seconds? I, I don't think we've met Lancer yet. So fuck! Not How? <laughs> Lancer and Archer, bro. Two hottest men in fucking anime. There is a certain missing servant class and I don't know which one it is. So it's a possibility there's just no... Lancer. Anyways, that's not important. Overall, a Holy Grail War set in a new country with twists on the rules that we're used to sounds like a ton of fun. And production-wise, I, of course, like everybody else, loved Ufotable's work on the Fate franchise, but this might be one of the more interesting Fate adaptations we've had from an animation and a direction perspective. Clearly, some of the production was rushed. I don't think that's a surprise at all, given how many times this was delayed. And not every shot comes through because of clearly that crunching of the schedule. But the ideas that are present just in this hour special are really, really ambitious. The Gilgamesh and Enkidu fight at the end of the special is such a great example of what they are trying to go for with this adaptation and where most of the spectacle just really, really comes through. As we've said, this has been delayed multiple times and we only got that one hour special as a prequel to the series. So we have at least gotten confirmation now that the TV adaptation for the rest of the series is in the works, which we did not have before. But there's no date. And judging by how the production for this went, it might unfortunately be until like 2025 or something when we see the rest of this. Regardless, this was a great, super entertaining hour. I think people should go watch it. And I'm super excited to see where the rest of it goes. A1 needs to focus more on SAO. Just saying <laughs> they need that to right focus now. more on the things that they keep <laughs> committing to doing and then dropping. I mean, yeah. Are we still talking about fucking Automata? That is coming out soon. <laughs> yeah, we've been saying that for like 17 months now. <laughs> All right, that's it about Fate. Finally, I wanted to cover Oku the Inner Chambers, which is being done by Studio Dean. Who is watching this show? A lot of people. Really? Yeah. Let's see. Colleen's watching it. 
You can't name names, bro. All of the anime feminist people are watching it. I don't care who's watching it on Mal. Shoujo's is always underwatched on Mal. It's another 7.54 with 3,000 people watching this show. There's actually a good reason for that rating this time. <laughs> the low watch count is sad. Low watch count makes sense for something that I'm going to talk about in a second, but also obviously because it's show Jose that typically leads to lower God watch damn. counts. This seems like up my alley. Yeah, I'm going to get there if you just fucking let me. But also the Netflix batch drop with very little marketing definitely oh, didn't help Netflix? either. Yeah. Okay, so the premise is, in an alternate Edo era Japan, a strange new disease has begun to prey on the country's men. Within 80 years of the first outbreak, the male population has fallen to a quarter of the female population. This sounds like a hentai start plot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't chuckle like that. <laughs> this has led to women taking on all of the roles traditionally granted to men, even that of the shogun. The men are considered precious providers of life and thus are carefully protected with the most beautiful men sent to serve in the shogun's inner chambers. Yes, the female shogun has a harem. So this was actually dropped, as I mentioned, at Netflix all at once, with the first episode being over an hour long. And it's an adaptation of a shoujo jose manga by Fumi Yoshinaga that has won numerous awards, such as the Excellence Prize at the Japan Media Arts Festival, the 56th Shokugakan Manga Award, and the Tezuka Osama Cultural Grand Prize, and a variety of gender and feminism awards. And actually, Colleen, who has been on this podcast, uh, has numerous times talked about it as one of her favorite Shoujo Jose, it's actually hard to delineate which one it is because the magazine that it was published in like was Jose and transitioned to Shoujo or the other way around. So it's weird to actually categorize it. But she's talked many times about how much she likes it, how interesting it is and kind of unique as the Shoujo Jose story, but also how much she'd love to see it adapted to anime. And it is generally a really well regarded manga that I think people were excited to see adapted. So watching that first episode, I can see, much like Oshinoko, why they decided to extend the length of that first episode, since it adapts, as we just talked about with Fate, the prologue of the story. And that prologue follows Mizuno's rise within the inner chambers and the beginning of the reign of a new shogun Yoshimune, who wants to change the status quo of the shogunate as a progressive leader. This gives really good insight into the setting and political structure of this alternate version of society, and the rest of the episodes then skip back in time to cover the entire history of the shogunate during this time, spanning multiple generations and how society in Japan transitioned from male to female succession. If you know anything about the Edo era in Japan, which I don't really know that much, to be honest, I imagine this concept is even more intriguing since they actually take real people in history that you would know about and portray them as characters in this alternate reality. Thematically, Oku is really fascinating, and I can't wait to read more feminist reviews of the series once I've caught up. The anime doesn't actually cover the entire manga, and I actually might read that because I think it's quite a bit better. So far, the main argument to me seems to be along the lines of even in a world where women quote-unquote rule, men are still cherished and placed at the center of society because the systems that uphold the patriarchy are still present. Women still bear the brunt of the labor for society, and men exist as a valuable resource that they have to fight over. And Oku does a brilliant job of exposing that superficial changes like just having women lead don't actually change the structures that are present that allow preferential treatment for the men in society. I think the biggest unfortunate part here is that the adaptation by Studio Dean is exceedingly mediocre at best. The animation is really stiff and limited. 
there's some really meme-worthy scenes that I've seen floating around that really just should not be meme-worthy given the context. Oku really deserved much better, as unfortunately many shoujos they do. I think this is a particularly bad case of it. The saving grace here, quote-unquote, is that they've at least stuck pretty closely to the plot. And that alone, I think, is worth the watch because this concept is really original and unique, and I think it has a lot to say. Some of the voice acting also carries. I've heard it's one of Mamoru Miyano's best roles in years. I haven't gotten to the emotional heights of that, but he is in it, and he plays one of the central characters. So I'm excited to see what he's able to do with that. Overall, I would recommend people watch Oku, but you do have to know what you're getting yourself into with a really amazing story and really, really unsatisfactory art. <laughs> so maybe just read the manga. <laughs> From, yeah. From everything you talked about, I mean, it seems like something I'd be very interested in. I'm surprised you didn't talk about the only thing that I have actually seen about this show, which is that there are many trigger warning worthy events that happen. I haven't gotten to anything yet. So I watched the hour long prologue or the hour and a half long prologue first episode. Yeah. And there is some making out like adults are doing adult things. And obviously there should be a trigger warning for an attempted rape scene that happens in the first episode where basically the main character of that prologue gets to the Oku. It gets to these inner chambers as one of the men there. And a few of the other men are like bullying him and they attempt to rape him, which doesn't actually happen. It definitely does cover sensitive subject matter. I haven't gotten to anything beyond that. And there might be more. From what I've heard from people, the mangaka is very, very intentional about these things and apparently is just a very, very good feminist writer. So I'm interested to see if anything else kind of stems from that. Yeah, I'm interested to watch this. <laughs> I don't know. You should I'm, read it. <laughs> I'm going to do that. Right uh, after you watch Haikim on a Monogatari. <laughs> yeah. The problem with me, again, is just that to like, shut my brain off and just like consume media I just like watching things way more than reading it reading is yeah. just way more active and I'm reading shit all day I just want to come home and just fucking put something on and let my eyes bleed and that's how we got vending machine anime only two more episodes <laughs> maybe three if you feel it in the mood maybe three alright as usual at the end of this episode we at least run down through the other shows that People are talking about and watching in the community. So one of those, of course, is part two of Bleach Thousand Year Blood War arc. Looks so good. Yeah, I think you liked what you saw of the first part. But yeah, you I saw right. part of the first part. I fucking hate how they have all these parts separated by like multiple months and or years. I'm just going to wait until it releases near its entirety and then just go through all of it. But it's probably fair. From everything that I've seen from the first part of it and the stills I've seen online, again, Tight Kubo is really just fucking doing it this time. The adaptation of the work just looks incredible. On the other end of the spectrum, we have season three of Rent-A-Girlfriend. Why? I have nothing to say about that. I have yet to watch Rent-A-Girlfriend. It will do be not. happening. No, do not. It will. <laughs> okay, we also are getting... Season two of Devil is a Part-Timer, exclamation point, exclamation point, And that's supposed to cue you in that that's already the second season. Why are they naming it like this? It's so fucking annoying. <laughs> I was so close to watching this for this episode. And then I was like, do I watch the fucking eyeglasses? You can't pick three meme-worthy shows. <laughs> or do I watch Devil is a Part-Timer? And it is sad. 
that I had to choose to watch fucking the meme-worthy Forgets Her Glasses show because Devil's a Part-Timer season two was just that bad. There's also just not that much more for us to say about Devil is a Part-Timer, the second season of it. It's a continuation. I don't think the animation is going to get any better, and we've kind of already said what we needed to say about it. I doubt the first few episodes of this season would really change your mind in any significant way. I just love the foreheads, dude. Yeah, that's really criminal. It's foreheads for days. (laughs) The other thing coming out this season is the Roroni Kenshin reboot being done by Leiden Films. AI have heard that is exceedingly mediocre as well. Second of all, if you don't know, the mangaka is a huge fucking pedophile. He was caught with so much child pornography that they thought he was distributing it. He did not get punished at all. We talked about this on the podcast before. So if you're going to watch this, if you have any desire to watch this, please pirate it. Do not contribute to royalties that go towards this monster. Just don't fucking do it. And... We also got quintessential quintuplets movie being done by Shaft. The only reason it's on here is because it's being done by Shaft. Why is Shaft a part of this franchise? What happened to my beloved studio? They are doing the right thing. They're going the right direction. I'm loving that they're taking these choices. Where is the Madoka sequel movie? No, no, no. The key visual is older than the podcast and there's no news about it. How is that possible? Wait till they introduced the sixth quintessential quintuplet. I'm so excited. <laughs> the sex essential sex dump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The sex essential hentai. <laughs> I mean, it sounds more hentai than even the fucking plot of this Oku show that you talked about. Fucking sex tuple sex dump. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, the we're, sex we're essential sex dump. We're on a bender right now. That is absolutely a podcast running joke now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to say about this season? Yeah, I don't know, man. I feel like I was a real downer about this season. And I think that stems from the fact that I have been eating so well with anime for the past many, many seasons. I've always really looked forward to some things. And those things have generally hit. Winter was horrific this year. I don't know what you're talking about. No, what are we talking about? Winter had Vinland Saga, which of course- Oh yeah, horrific, bro. No, but like this season also has some good stuff. Yeah, but nothing else- uh, I watched fucking Fire Hunter this winter. <laughs> I don't know, man. I watched some isekai that I enjoyed. But anyway, yeah, for this season, like JJK is definitely hitting. I think I'm just sad by what we've gotten with the sequel seasons. I mean, Mushoku Tensei is still great. I'm fucking loving it, but it's just not the same quality. We'll see. That may pick up. Stop complaining. <laughs> I'm sounding a little like a titled fucking anime boy out here. <laughs> little entitled weeb. I am more than happy to fucking sit on my haunches and wait for a fall season and winter season because coming here. But this season has left me a little sad that the sequels have just not up to par. I'm having fun. <laughs> yeah, because you're watching fucking... What was the show that has a 7.5 on Mal? <laughs> Undead Girl. <laughs> That's actually good. You should watch that. That's been it from us for this episode. Next episode, we are going to be talking about White Fox anime. So stay tuned for that coming out in two weeks. Subscribe to the podcast, anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere like that. If you use Apple Podcasts or Spotify and you could leave us a rating and a review, that'd be great. Helps out the show a lot. Check out our website, bakamenter.com. Follow us on Twitter at bakamenterpod. And we've mentioned the Discord a few times this episode. So as always, feel free to join that. Come chat with us about anime. Chat with us about life. Tell us our taste is shit. My taste is fantastic. I don't know what you're talking about, man. That's what people did today to me in the Discord. (laughs) 
today started and ended for you when <laughs> when someone on the Discord was like, yeah, you know, Hunter Hunter was a waste not of time. It, man. Yeah. <laughs> that ant arc, just not it. Creating the Discord was a mistake. <laughs> I have never felt more validated. Thank you. Anyway, it's the wrong take, but you're welcome to come join our Discord and have the wrong takes or tell us that we have the wrong takes. We'd love to chat with you over there. And that's been it from us. Was it user Luigi? Let me end the episode. No, 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 I can't. Was it user Luigi? Say the full name. Luigi got big tits. It was indeed. It's nice. Mr. Luigi got big tits. <laughs> Very active Discord user. Uh, shout out. I think Yanni has at times been like, uh, Discord user. Uh, 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 yes, Discord user. No, I did that one time, but I actually genuinely forgot what the name was. That was when they asked us a question for the mailbag or something on Twitter. Otherwise, I think I actually have said the name. But now when I refer to this Discord user in real life, I just say Luigi Tits. <laughs> I hope they listen to this episode and can appreciate the fact that we're spending so much time talking about their Discord username. Yeah. Anyways, I'm ending the episode now. <laughs> That's been it from us. We've been the Bacomanter Lads, and we'll catch you all in the next one.